Do you love him? Do you love him? He loves you with an everlasting love. He always has. He always will, whether you decide to serve him or not. We must realize the position that God has placed us. And that position does not depend on our condition because it changes. But Jesus himself, when he came and he said, I completed the work that my father had sent me to do. He looked down from the cross and he said, that work is finished. In the heat of the early morning, on the hill they come the skull. The roaring of the angry mob had settled to a low. All eyes were cast upon the man whose hands and feet were bound. They saw him cry in anguish when they heard the heaven Alright, let's move on to chapter two. Some objections? Yes. Now I do. I admire uh, Lewis for actually including chapter two in this book. Right? He's he's attempting to address some objections. He doesn't do a good job, but at least he's attempting. You got to give him credit for that. Yeah. What happened was he he put this stuff out, and then people sent him a bunch of mail saying, "What about this? What about this?" And so he attempts to address that in this one. So, so his first what if is what if what Lewis calls a moral law is simply an instinct. And, and it's developed the same way as other instincts. So this is kind of an attempt to respond to an evolutionary argument that, you know, what if nature evolved uh, morality? Now, it's not a sophisticated response. You know, I'm not sure if this stuff had been developed uh, as far as it has now, you know, with the uh, kin selection and reciprocal altruism and that sort of thing. Uh, he responds kind of more in a, in a general fashion. So um, he says that some impulses may be instincts, and he's following Hume in, in that respect. Other instincts he thinks aren't. But he says, say, say they are instincts, these impulses. But what happens when two instincts come into conflict, right? So you, you hear a cry for help from a man in danger. Um, the instinct to help conflicts with the instinct to preserve yourself from harm. Now, Lewis says that in addition to these impulses, there must be a third thing, or in Latin, a tertium quid, that tells you to follow the instinct to help. This third thing, he says, cannot be an instinct itself, for it decides between two instincts, and so must be somehow above them, like how a music sheet cannot be itself a note on the piano. To which I say, bullshit. Of course you can have a music sheet on a note. It just has to be written really small. Of course, it could be an instinct that controls other instincts. It, you know, he, he utterly fails to, to make a case for it to be uh, not an instinct. But it's okay, because Lewis himself doesn't seem satisfied with his example, so he continues, he goes on to say that if, if all that were present were instincts, Matt, then obviously the stronger of the two instincts would always win. Okay. But he says, often the moral law tells us to obey the weaker of the two instincts, uh, in this case... The instinct to preserve oneself from harm, then, would always outweigh the instinct to help other people, because that should be a stronger instinct, right? But often we feel compelled to help anyway. So well, he's got to make the case that that would be a stronger instinct. And, and, and I, you know what? You're right. Because the problem here is, is Lewis's lack of imagination. He stops when he finds an example, right, that provides ammunition for his argument, and then he doesn't look any further. 
What happens, for example, when the instinct to preserve oneself is stronger than the instinct to help? Um, what happens? What happens to the moral law, for example, when there's a cry for help and the guy's sinking in lava, and you know that if you jump into that lava, you're going to die too? What happens then? Does the moral law, is that weaker instinct, does it always point us to jump into the fucking lava? Are you saying we have reason? We have uh, the ability to think our way through these things? I'm saying even if even if we accept his argument, we don't always go to his conclusion. Right. Because the stronger the two instincts in that case would always win. In, in that similar case, when you know the, the instinct that's stronger is to protect yourself from harm, if that outweighs the help. And I think even in this case, I don't think the instinct to help is the weaker response. I think it is the stronger, so long as you're not putting yourself into too much danger, right? So he again, he's completely failed. Uh, what if it is stronger? What if the instinct to help is the stronger one in that case? So he, he's really failed to make his case in here. He says another objection Lewis brings up is the question, isn't what you call the moral law just a social convention, something that, that is put into us by education. And he responds by comparing the, this moral law, this universal moral law, to a multiplication table. He says, multiplication tables are also taught to us by convention, uh, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't represent truth or that the table could have been somehow different. So he says there are two classes of taught things, things that are taught to you. So things that are mere convention and things like mathematics that represent truth. So he says the only question is, which of these two classes does the moral law belong? Is it a convention, or is it like the mathematics? Does it represent actual truth? Well, which is it? He gives two reasons that it belongs in the same class as mathematics. One, the differences between moral ideas of one time and place and that of any other time and place are not that great. He actually gives um, a list of all this stuff at the end. Like There's an appendix in The Abolition of Man where he reads from the Code of Hammurabi, uh, Egyptian law, and, and compares it to the fucking Ten Commandments and, and says that, you know, these these ideas are kind of present in, in every culture. So, God, um, I'll address that later. The second reason, he says, is when you think about these differences between the morality of one people and another, do you think that the morality of one people is ever better or worse than that of another? So, for example, is the morality of, of say, Christians better than the morality of Nazis? This is the example he gives. He says, if no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality, or Christian morality to Nazi morality. Uh, he says, the moment you set one moral system above another, you're comparing them both to a moral standard, and finding that one of them fits the standard better than the other. So, those are his two reasons, and, and Matt, there are so many problems with this, uh, these two statements, it's hard to know where to begin. Start at the top. So, the only way, in, in response to his first argument, right, the only way to, to find a moral consensus between different civilizations over vastly different time periods and geographies is to zoom out so far that any moral statements that are agreed upon become really ridiculously trivial. Stuff like, don't unnecessarily take a life unless you have to, or try not to <laughs> steal unless you have a very good reason, or to be honest, unless it's a really clever lie that gets you or your countrymen out of trouble. You know, you know stuff like that, stuff that... that, that just kind of eventually becomes meaningless. And the fact that there's a moral consensus anyway between different civilizations, assuming there is, say you grant the premise, that doesn't mean that there's a moral law. It just could mean, for example, an, an alternative explanation is that all humans evolved under a similar set of circumstances. 
that's his argument, isn't it? That there is a background standard of morality that we all subscribe to, and that's what enables us to make the decisions we regard as moral. Correct. And, and it makes the decision moral. And therefore, that has to be outside of humans because it can't be inside humans, or otherwise we differ in it. And so there must be some sort of standard that objectively exists outside of humans. That That's yes. his leap. A second problem, you know, when he talks about preferring, say, for example, the morality of one, one people over another, is it, that, it, that it's truer or better? Jesus Christ. Why is he equating truth with better, right? What, truth is a binary value. It's either true or false. Better is kind of a value judgment. You can't equate truer with better. It's a category error unless you sort of assign some value to true. I guess I suppose then something could be truer than something else. But if you do that, if you assign, if you, if you do away with the binary nature of true and false and then replace it with your own subjective value, isn't that defeating the reason for equating them in the first place? Doesn't truer then become better and not true at all? It's not because we hold truth to be an ideal in itself? There's no, there's no value judgment to truth. I suppose if you say, if you assign good to true, then you can say better. This is better than that. But then why, why bother saying true? Why bother saying truer? Right. Uh, you, you're just actually saying better. You're, you're uh, equating that. So <sighs> something is either true or it is false. This whole section, is, it, is this... Uh I'm gonna break out. I'm gonna break off some big words here. Is this uh, Euthyphro's dilemma? <laughs> Did I say that right? <laughs> Euthyphro's dilemma. Euthyphro's dilemma. Um, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I gotta that's, go back to my. That's where is. <laughs> well, I you know maybe it's kind of a form of it. I say a prong of it. Is God good? Because there's an objective moral standard that's outside God, and He matches up to that standard. Or is th- that standard there because God decides that it's good, right? Is it good in, a, in and of itself, or does God like it because it's good? Right. Um, that's kind of euthyphrostral. Anyway. Um, that's just what I was getting out of this section of him. It's like, things aren't good because it's good. They're good because something says it's good. Well, right. He, he's he's conflating two different categories there. Truth and falsity, and I guess good and better. He's not He's not a sharp thinker. He's not a sharp philosophical thinker. And so um, these things that should be separate, uh, he conflates. All right, so Lewis's examples, the next problem I have with Lewis's examples, savage versus civilized, Christian versus Nazi, these examples themselves come from a person who's embedded in a specific time and place, right? He's subject to the specific values that he's been taught in his own geography, in his own culture. So isn't this third thing that Lewis says we're comparing the two moral systems to just the moral system that we were raised with? I mean, does C.S. Lewis really think that he could be convinced to become a Nazi because uh, of, a, of an objective moral standard? I mean, does he think he, he prefers Christianity because it's objectively true and Nazism is objectively false? Does he argue that a person who was raised with Christian morals could ever prefer an Incan moral system that includes child sacrifice? I mean, is this, is this really what he's saying? Does he think that if he was raised in Germany, he would have been a Nazi? Or would he have known the difference? What, what he's saying is that if no set of moral ideas were any more truer or any better than any other, so if you think that one moral system is better than another, then you're not a relativist. You think that, that you're an objectivist. You think that it's objectively better. But aren't you just saying that this moral system is closer to the one that I was raised with? In that sense, it's better? Isn't that what you're saying? I mean, how is it possible for Lewis to ex- extract a, an objective moral standard 
when all that anyone can ever do is compare a moral system to the one that, that they like the best anyway. And that's typically the one they were raised with. Can we ever put ourselves in Incan's shoes and say, yeah, that moral system looks good to me? So also, Matt, it, it's clear that uh, Lewis really doesn't understand relativism here. A true through-and-through through relativist would not say that any moral system, any one moral system, is truer or better than any other moral system. They'd say that any preference of one moral system over another is simply an emotional response to, to what primarily is an emotional decision in the first place. Uh, like Hume, for example, Hume thought that moral decisions are, are simply emotions played out, and there's nothing objective there. Relativists believe that <clears throat> moral systems are, are, are made up by the, the culture that they're in, right, and handed down, um, and they're no better or worse than uh, in any real sense, because there's no there, there's nothing to morality or ethics that you can hang your hat on. It's just st- stuff that people do. The idea of an objective. Now that's my thing. That's that's where I'm, I'm sitting here. As we've had this discussion, I'm thinking, I'm starting to question my morality, and I'm sitting there like, I thought, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. I thought I was a moral relativist, but but we make the decision to stand with whatever we decide on, and that and that decision on what we go with comes from you know our upbringing and our society, and you know I I have that moral relativism where like I don't think you know one thing's better than another. But we can decide it is. Sure. Starting from a certain premise, right? So you can take certain premises uh, and, and move forward. But it's, it's, you know, you have to just accept the premises. You can't, you can't, it's hard to argue premises with someone. If they, if they disagree with you that maximizing people's happiness is a good thing, it's tough to have a coherent argument with them. All right. So, um, you know, the, the relatives w- would say the idea of a, an objective morality, right, that somehow somehow exists outside of human beings. Like, a morality, an obje- truly objective morality would have just as much to do with rocks and trees as it would with human beings. If, if it doesn't require human beings or actions of human beings to have any moral uh, value. Um, so so that, that, that idea isn't just incoherent. It, it, it's a category error. There, there's nothing going on in, in moral decision-making process other than kind of the fulfillment of, of subjective desires. You ever uh, remember reading Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath? Oh, yeah. So the character in there, Jim Casey, my favorite part of the book when I was reading this in high school, he said, uh, there ain't no sin and there ain't no virtue. There's just stuff people do. That, that, right. that anything that we put on top of that stuff is our subjective determination. So if you're arguing with someone about ethics, and I mean, you can argue whether it's ethically right or wrong to, for example, pour acid in a baby's eyeballs to see if it changes the color like Nazis did. You could argue that that's morally wrong based upon certain premises that uh, causing pain is wrong and uh, experimenting on human beings might be ethically wrong um, because it interferes with their right to self-determination. But again, all of these all these are premises, right? You have to accept. If you don't accept any of those premises, then what can you say about that action? You certainly can't say that, that anything is objectively morally wrong until until you describe what you mean by morality. So he understand he, he misunderstands C.S. Lewis mis, uh, fundamentally misunderstands relativism here and moral subjectivity. So C.S. Lewis actually goes on to argue that quote if the rule of decent behavior meant simply whatever each nation happens to approve, there would be no sense in saying that any one nation had ever been more correct in its approval than any other. 
He says this as an obvious counter-argument to moral relativism, but Lewis, that's exactly correct. I claim, was going to say that. <laughs> he's got it. The claim itself is meaningless to the relativist. The, 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 you know, if it does simply mean whatever nation each nation happens to approve, then there would be no sense in the you know any other nation being more correct in its approval than any other. Yes, you 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 finally understand it. But the problem is he doesn't. He says that, you know he says that as an obvious counterexample. He doesn't get it. He ta- he ends the chapter by taking one more shot at the moral differences uh, counter argument. You know he keeps he keeps coming back to this. <laughs> I mean the number of these. Uh, oh yeah, and one more thing here. Arguments that he devotes to this topic. You know, it, it, it seems obvious that he thinks that that's his weakest link, this moral differences, differences between cultures. Um, so he says this. One man said to me, 300 years ago, people in England were putting witches to death. Was that what you call the rule of human nature or right conduct? Now, you might... <laughs> <God>. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> uh, you, you might think, Lewis here would say that even though we all know the moral law, we don't always follow it, right? Like he said in the first fucking chapter. But he doesn't. He says, quote, But surely the reason we do not execute witches is that we do not believe there are such things. If we did, (laughs) if we really thought that there were people going about who had sold themselves to the devil and received supernatural powers from him in return and were using these powers to kill their neighbors or drive them mad or bring bad weather, surely we would all agree that if anyone deserved the death penalty, then these filthy quizlings did. Right. <laughs> as long as you think they're a witch, it's okay to execute them. You should execute them. So, apparently, Lewis is giving his tacit approval to all the uh, witch killings, because these people actually did believe that there were people going about who sold themselves to the devil. So in that case, it is okay to murder them. Oh, doesn't he see that the the great advance there is that we don't believe in witches at all anymore? That's the advance, (laughs) not the not executing them part. (laughs) It's it's not believing in witches anymore. (laughs) Oh, my God. Chapter chapter three. Chuck, would you call a man humane if he ceased to set mousetraps? Because there were no more mice in the house? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. If he didn't believe mice existed (laughs) and then stopped setting mousetraps, yes, it's very humane. What a humanitarian. What a man of progress. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. And, And folks, it doesn't get any better from here, honestly. Chapter three, the reality of the law. So Lewis reminds his readers of what he said before, that there are two odd things about the human race. One, that they are haunted by the idea of a moral standard, and two, that they fail to live up to this standard. So this is, this is Lewis's great advance here. This is his great original idea, that there's a moral standard and we're haunted by it, and that we all fail to live up to the standard. I suppose if we lived up to it, we wouldn't be haunted by it. Yeah. Lewis says that this is unique <laughs> to humans. Uh, you can't take a stone or a tree and say it ought to have been otherwise. Although, why not if you have an objective fucking moral standard? All that you can say <laughs> is that a stone might not be shaped right for some use you'd like to put it to, or that a tree wasn't big enough for to provide the shade that you wanted. In other words, Matt, unlike humans, an object in nature might not be convenient for a certain purpose, but it cannot be blamed for that because it was it was just following the laws of nature that shaped it. So for nature, there might be nothing really above a tree or a rock, just just laws that describe causes and effects, right? 
but not so for humans. Ah, yes. The law of human nature does not describe what humans actually do, but what they ought to do. So, <laughs> say what? How do we know what we ought? How does <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Matt, hasn't he demonstrated by now that there's a law of human nature that points you in the moral direction? Wait, does he know what human nature yes. tells us what we ought to do? Yes. Why doesn't he just tell us that? <laughs> Forget all these examples. Just tell me what I ought to do. <laughs> he can't. He just has to give you a bunch of examples. So when you're dealing with humans, according to Lewis, something else comes in above and beyond the actual facts. So he, he, he says that you can't just explain this away in the same way as rocks and trees, right? You can't say that bad behaviors are just behaviors that, that are inconvenient to you. And he gives a bunch of fucking examples as if we don't understand this. He says, a behavior may be inconvenient and thought of as good or neutral, such as a man occupying your favorite space in the subway because he got there first. It's inconvenient for you, but the man isn't evil. He says a good behavior cannot just be behavior that pays either, because some behavior that pays off... Like it's such as cheating on a test or, or not raping a woman. He actually says this, right? He says, as, as an example of good behavior, leaving a girl alone when you would like to make love to her is admirable behavior. I have to find that far away. Admirable behavior. Oh, leaving a girl alone when you would like to make love right? That's admirable <laughs> That's behavior. That's right. It means things like being content with 30 shillings when you might have got three pounds. It's schoolwork. Honestly, what would be easy to cheat? Leaving a girl alone yes. when you would like to make love to her. Yes. Not that, raping that, that is, is decent behavior, is decent Chuck. Behavior. I'm going to agree with behavior. that. <laughs> That's good behavior, sir. Way to go. I'm going to say that to somebody one day. I'm going to be like, just go right up next. I'm going to be like, I noticed how you didn't rape that woman. Strong work. That. God. Uh, also, Matt, good behavior cannot be defined just as what is good for society because that does not offer any additional reasoning beyond being unselfish. It's just it's just a tautology. Wait, yeah, he's saying it's, it's a tautology? So, Why? I, so, for example, you say, what's good behavior? And then you say, well, what's good for society? Well, what's that? You know, being unselfish. But, but that's, of course, what's good for society. So you get caught in a circle, right? It's just It's just repeating the same thing. There's there's no additional information that is gained by defining good behavior as what is good for a society because being unselfish, for example, is good for society, right? So, so good good behavior for a good society is not good enough no, it, for um, good behavior. Whatever is in the best interest of society, whatever is good for society, right? You can't just say that that's the definition of good behavior. Because it doesn't offer you, and all, the the behavior comes first, right? The behavior that that is good for society, such as being unselfish, is by definition good for society. So you're not you're not offering any additional behavior or additional information by saying that. So you could just stop by saying okay. being unselfish is good behavior, right? Okay, so that's the circular reason. So what is so what is he, he saying? He's, it is well, he's right now. He's saying what it's not. He goes on to say the law of human nature is not a mere fancy either, because one, we can't rid ourselves of it, and two, most of the things we say and think about men would be reduced to nonsense if we did. <laughs> I don't know how either premise leads to Lewis's conclusion. It just seems that both of those don't follow. So we can't rid ourselves That's of it, so therefore it's not a mere fancy. Right, it just falls around everywhere, so it's not a mere fancy. What the fuck does that have to do with the other? And and most of the things we say and think about men would be reduced to nonsense if if it was a, a mere fancy. I suppose if we thought that the law of human nature was a mere fancy. Well, so what? 
what 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 if most of the things we say and think about men is nonsense? I mean, that, that's not a counter argument. You fucking idiot. It may just be nonsense. You have to say why, C.S. Lewis, is it not nonsense? Because people would say, for example, Matt, the Earth being round, yeah. why? That's nonsense. A lot of the stuff we say about the world would be reduced to nonsense if we accepted that it was round. Wait, <laughs> that have anything follow. to do with it. You could very well be wrong. Oh, God. All right, so, at this point, Lewis believes he has established a law of morality, which, therefore, because he's met all of the counterexamples, he's met all of the objections that, that could possibly be raised to this. So that, therefore, means, Matt, that there is something above and beyond nature, this law of morality, which means that there, therefore, must be more than one kind of reality. There must be a supernature. Oh, a multiverse? <laughs> at, at least, you you at least have our reality and then some sort of dimension where the law of morality exists. C.S. Lewis, first proponent <laughs> of M-theory. <laughs> a man far ahead of his time. Chapter four, Matt, That's what right. lies behind the law? What does lie behind the law? Well, More law, some people say. Lewis considers what the universe is and how it came to be, Matt, and he finds two views have been held. Apparently, in his little footnote, he says, the, please, don't, please don't assume that one of these views is naturally replaced by the other. Um, wherever there are intelligent people, these two views have always held. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, <clears throat> the materialist view and the religious view. What? Here, oh, that's right. Here's his formulation, Matt, of the materialist view, so the naturalist. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist, and always have existed, nobody knows why. And that matter, behaving in certain fixed ways, has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures <laughs> like ourselves who are able to think. And then he goes on to say what may be the stupidest thing he has said in this entire book so far. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. Remember, Matt, he's setting up the materialist view. So, okay. So, you know, space and matter have always existed, and there's a certain fixed laws of matter, and they just sort of produced by a fluke to produce creatures like ourselves. By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets. <laughs> <laughs> like, Piece of like an asteroid? Or like a god sperm? That's how... <laughs> That's how C.S. Lewis thinks our fucking solar system was... Uh, th th that's how Lewis thinks the naturalists believe the scientific view is. That some fucking massive asteroid, by one chance in a thousand, hit the fucking sun, and then somehow made a bunch of rocky fucking planets out of helium and hydrogen. Which, by the way, by a chance in a thousand, there'd be a lot of worlds out there with intelligent life on it. <laughs> I love it. I guess... It just knocked a fucking piece of the sun out, and that became the other, the, the eight planets in the solar system. Well, that's like that Moby song. We're all made of stars. <laughs> that's where we came from. <laughs> okay, well, if you want to say that maybe supernova and it blew up and then recoalesced, I suppose you're getting closer to it, but the fucking <laughs> massive fucking. This is just the argument the from incredulity, the, yeah. or it's just the argument from ignorance. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's not even very good at formulating the materialist position. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm reading that shit, and I, I, I'm I'm counting at least seven errors in a sentence and a half. 
That is, that is fucking astounding to me, even by a Kirk Hastings standard. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, this Lewis that has no fucking idea. <laughs> no fucking idea what he's talking about here, and we're supposed to trust him on scientific shit. Jesus. You should give him the whole sentence. It's it's great. Go go for it. By one chance in a thousand, something hit our sun and made it produce the planets. And by another thousandth chance, the chemicals necessary for life and the right temperature occurred on one of these planets. And so <laughs> some of the matter on this earth came alive. And then, by a very long series of chances, the living creatures developed into things like us. And the other view is the religious view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's nailed us. He's, he's got us... Um... Down to the most minute detail. That's really impressive. That is exactly what I believed. Here's the religious view. What is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious, and it has purposes, and prefers one thing to another. Well, that's perfectly reasonable. You know you know how foolish it is, Matt, to believe that matter and space have always existed? Nobody knows why. But it's not foolish at all to believe that fucking a bearded... Uh, omnipotent being always existed. Nobody knows why. That's perfectly reasonable. Beardo, that's the god I believe in. <laughs> Who fucking comes out of sperm and knocks eight planets off the sun. Nine oh, back in Lewis's time. What does he mean? He could, How come he could just say stuff like that, that the universe is conscious and has purpose? Is he going to, is he going to back that up? This, this is the, um, this is the saying that 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 it has intent. This is, this is the thing that lies behind the universe. So he's coming up to the the idea of the of God here, right? So he goes on to note that you cannot find out which view is right, the right one, by science in the ordinary sense. And he tells us, you know, he's already demonstrated a, a remarkable grasp of of cosmology. He's going to now tell us how science works. Science works by experiments. Every scientific statement in the long run, however complicated it looks, really means something like. I pointed the telescope to such and such a part of the sky at 2.20 a.m. on January 15th and saw so-and-so. Or, (laughs) I put some of this stuff in a pot and heated it to such and such a temperature and it did so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much science to a T. Science. That's exactly (laughs) how science works. You know, it's, um, that's pretty much how we got the theory of relativity, Matt. Uh, Einstein put some shit in a pot and boiled it and fucking came out with the special theory of relativity. Well, yeah, that's how every scientific statement looks like, however complicated. You know how I, how I mentioned how terrible Lewis was at math? I mean, it really shows here. He has no fucking clue how theoretical models are, models are formed or, or how central a part math is played in the science of the 20, 20th century. I mean, Jesus Christ, Lewis. Crack He's a fucking as, science book. He's as good as math as I am at philosophy. <laughs> Appalling. He continues. He's not done, oh, man. He continues. But why anything comes to be there at all, and whether there is anything behind the thing science observes, something of a different kind. This is not a scientific question. So, um, and why not? Here, here again, we hear this from like every fucking evangelical on the planet. They're echoing C.S. Lewis here. You know, Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, Ken Ham. Uh, Kent Hovind. This isn't a scientific question. Questions of origins aren't scientific questions. They're philosophical questions. Science can't address questions of origin. I say the same thing. Why the fuck not? Why can't science address this? Yeah, it's a reality statement. If you're making a reality statement, 
science can address that. If God exists and he exists uh, and, and interacts with the fucking world, we should be able to address that. And that's the claim that God has reached in and, and, and say, created the universe or reached in and done a bunch of fucking miracles. We should be able to, to, to address that with science. They, they have natural consequences, even though the, the origin may be supernatural. So the problem with this idea that, that science can't address it, really, uh, other than what we what we just said, is that uh, science limits our cognitive biases, right? So it offers self-correction in a way, really, that no other field does. So it's a, really the best tool that we have for gaining reliable knowledge. So if Lewis is right, and this isn't a question for science, uh, religion really doesn't offer any help either, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, Lewis pretty much admits this. He says that, that, that the situation would be hopeless, except he says there's a way out. We, we, we know one thing in the universe better than anything we can externally observe, and that, that's ourselves. He says we have inside information. We are in the know. Because of that, we know that humans are under a moral law, right? He's already proved this, that they cannot escape and ought to obey. So, so in the one case where we can expect to find evidence of the creator ourselves, we do. We find the moral law stamped on us. He says that should make us suspicious of, of all the other cases. Oh, uh, I never saw that. So, <laughs> so uh, I call this I call this, by the way, the argument from fuck learning anything new. Because <laughs> <laughs> he says that he says like supposing science ever became complete so that it knew every yes. single thing in the whole universe. Yes. it's not playing that the questions why is there a universe? Why does it go on? Has it any meaning? would remain just as they are. Wrong. Just, just fuck learning anything. Wrong. You know? Wrong. It, it only, you know, science only, science answers why questions all the time. You know, uh, why why do electrons uh, uh, appear in the orbits that they do, right? Why do supernovas occur? How do black holes form? Why does a baseball uh, describe a parabolic trajectory when you throw it? All the fucking time it answers why questions. It's just not the why questions that these assholes are after, like, you know, why is the universe here? The only answer is, oh, well, God created it. That's why. Well, that's that's a common objection, though. I have, I have this conversation with lots of friends that are not religious, but they are spiritual. Have you heard this? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. And that is, you know, science is objective, and it's not – there's a whole subjective realm that it can never answer. Oh, my God. And the, the answer to that is that if science can't answer it, you got nothing else that helps you out. Nothing. Nothing. Right. It's not a perfect nothing. system, but what's better? Right. There is nothing better. So let's – we've gone far enough now in these four chapters that, he, that we can lay out the argument that he's given us, right? Here's the argument. There is an objective moral standard that all humans know about, okay? Therefore, that standard or law cannot be found – inside humanity, but must somehow exist outside humanity and, 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 and nature. Therefore, there must be some supernatural entity that gives the law, you know, just like the law of gravity, except they're totally different. Therefore, God exists. So that, that's, that's the line of reasoning. So there are a number of problems with approach. We, we've already discussed that there's no universal agreement except in the most trivial cases uh, or in the broadest strokes. But, but these broad strokes... You know, like a sense of fairness or a sense of justice, we also share with chimpanzees, right? You remember that experiment where they have two chimpanzees next to each other and one gets a grape and the other gets a nut? 
And the one who gets the nut fucking throws it against the window because he's pissed off that his buddy got a grape and he didn't. That's unfair. That's unfair. So I thought this was a human law, right? Well, why is this human law uh, stamped on fucking chimpanzees? Did God implant that in them as well? You know, there's an experiment, Matt, with stickleback fish where they they put a um, a stickleback fish. You're making that up. Stickleback fish in an aquarium, and they angled the mirror a little bit, and they put a little uh, bigger fish just outside the aquarium. So when the stickleback fish moved, uh, it would see the thing in the mirror. And so if they angled it so that it looked like they moved at the same time, that stickleback fish would just keep bumping up against the edge of that to scare that bigger fish away and get it out of his territory. Now, if they angled it a little further so it looked like the other guy was hanging back and the stickleback fish was doing all the work, he'd stop bumping against it and draw back. Why? (laughs) Because (laughs) it's unfair. Why would he do all the work? It's their territory. He's sharing the territory. So, I fucking, I love stickleback fish, man. Stickleback fish is good. Good in tacos. Why? Why in the fuck would God implant a universal moral law inside a fucking stickleback fish? Why? God loves a stickleback, Chuck. Why? So that a stickleback fish could look inside itself and see that God exists? I mean, seriously? Is it, is it so the stickleback fish would feel bad about not living up to the universal moral law? I just, I don't fucking get it, Lewis. I don't get it. God, God has set up the stickleback so they may, we may see the truth inside ourselves by seeing the stickleback. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, even if there were universal moral agreement, right? Even if every fucking uh, country across all times and, and geographies agreed on morality, that doesn't make morality objective. The best you can get is morality being intersubjective, that we all agree on it. That doesn't mean that doesn't make it somehow objective, that it that it uh exists and is ex- observable and you can do tests on it and fucking exists outside of humans. So even if you grant his premise that he's right that all societies agree, it doesn't make morality objective. You know, even if you grant that morality was objective, right? So you grant that premise. That doesn't lead to his conclusion that a supernatural entity exists. Why would an objective morality entail a supernatural entity? Why would it have to be supernatural? Couldn't you um, uh, say that, for example, uh, this objective morality, objective because everybody agrees upon it, uh, it just uh, happens to be uh, a result of shared evolution? I mean, why does it rule out every naturalistic fucking cause? So say, again, even if you grant his premise that a supernatural entity exists again it doesn't it doesn't limit it to one supernatural entity it certainly doesn't get you any closer to christianity or even monotheism it could be a bunch of them and they decided this objective morality by a fiat by committee so even if you does, does that make it arbitrary i'm saying even if you grant every single one of his fucking premises they don't lead to every single one of his conclusions every single one of them does not follow it does not necessarily. So this is not a valid argument. <clears throat> All right, Matt. Chapter 5. Finally, the end of his first book of mere Christianity. We have cause to be uneasy. I have been uneasy through this whole thing. <laughs> let, me, let me read you the first part of this chapter. I ended my last chapter with the idea that in the moral law, somebody or something from beyond the material universe was actually getting at us. And I expect when I reached that point, some of you felt a certain annoyance. 
How did he know? <laughs> He's psychic. Lewis, that horse left the barn a long time ago. I've been fucking annoyed from page one. You may even have thought that I had played a trick upon you, that I had been carefully wrapping up to look like philosophy, what turns out to be one more religious jaw. That's exactly what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, no. I did not feel, Matt, like he was playing a trick on me. And I certainly didn't feel like he was carefully fucking wrapping up anything resembling philosophy. Oh, my God. He's trying to pat himself on the back, I think, with that comment. Have you ever read Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding or his dialogues concerning natural religion? Or any Kant? Oh, of course. Or Spinoza or Descartes or, or fucking even Aristotle or Plato? I mean, that th- these guys are on such a different fucking playing field than, than Lewis. It's, it's just laughable that he <sighs> thinks that we're being fooled, that... My God, it it was looking really a lot like philosophy to me. It was, it, I was having flashbacks of fucking Barclay and and, and Nietzsche. But uh, no, 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 no. It's just it's just a religious jaw. Uh, all right. Anyway, Lewis goes on to say that he hasn't gotten it to any specific religious ideas yet. He's just absolutely proven that something or someone exists beyond the natural worlds. Right. And, and now, so now that he's proven that, he says we have two ways of knowing about that something. You can either look at the universe he created, which is both beautiful and terrifying, and, and looking inside ourselves for the moral law that he's placed there. He says, now, from the second bit of evidence, we cl- conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty, and truthfulness. Again, that doesn't follow. I mean, say, say for a minute, what if Lewis is wrong? And the evolutionary biologists are right about kin selection and, and reciprocal altruism and, and that stuff. And that, that, that this isn't objective morality. And, and it's just that we evolved under shared circumstances. And so we, we share similar kind of moral compasses. Um, does that mean if evolution as a process uh, is responsible, that, that that is intensely interested in goodness and fair play? And if it doesn't follow in that case, if it doesn't mean that evolution is this fucking supernatural being that's interested in <laughs> fucking honesty and courage and unselfishness, if it doesn't follow in that case, why does it necessarily follow in the first case, as C.S. Lewis says? It doesn't follow in either. Ah, shit, I got lost. You got nothing. <laughs> you got nothing. He goes on to say that uh, this is the terrible fix we're in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts in the long run are hopeless. I mean, seriously? <sighs> uh, you know... I got news for you, Lewis. I know you don't fucking know any science, um, but the heat death of the universe is inevitable. Billions and billions and, and billions of years from now. Trillions? I don't know. Trillions. Trillions of years from now. Everything's going to be equivalent, essentially. It's it's all going to be close to absolute zero, and, and, and no one will remember anything. Why does it mean that, that our lives here and now are useless? You know, why does that fall? Why does he think that all our efforts in the in the long run, that, that that if they are hopeless, then that means our lives are, are meaningless. Because he can't choose purpose for himself? Yeah, right. Right. If, you know, the universe isn't governed by God, then, then somehow we're not able to make our own purpose and create that purpose and make, make meaning for ourselves. Uh, uh, he goes on. He says, our, he is our only possible ally, this God. And we, we have made ourselves his enemies by not following his moral law. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. 
They need to think again. They are still <laughs> only playing. I thought it would be fun. Shit. And uh, you know how the fuck does Lewis know that it's not fun? Right? Could be fun. How does he know that meeting the gaze of God doesn't result in fucking lollipops and bunny rabbits? He doesn't know that. Doesn't know Think it. again. He d- <laughs> it's fat shit and guano. <laughs> but those fuckers are only playing at religion. Oh my god! All right. So he goes on to explain that the the reason he approached the subject in the tricky manner that he did is that Christianity doesn't make sense until you've laid out the problem, right? So it's only after you realize that there's a moral law and that you've broken it that Christianity can speak to you. So this is you ever watch? Is it moral for C.S. Lewis to Approach this topic with us in a tricky manner just to teach us something? <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps he wasn't taught to be scrupulously honest as, as Jesus taught his apostles and disciples. And justify the means. That's the kind of man he is. Got it. So this idea that you have to understand that there's a moral law and that you've broken it. You remember, you ever watch The Way of the Master where they're trying to convince people to become Christians? And they, they always start by asking these questions like, have you ever lied have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever uh, had lustful thoughts? And then it's supposed to convict you in your heart, and then Christianity can get in there and, and solve the problem, right? So they're just following C.S. Lewis's um, idea here. It's amazing how much shit that I read in this mere Christianity is still being tossed out by these fucking Christians as if it it's genius. Well, they don't learn, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Good God! I mean, how many times did you ref- do you have to explain like the second law of thermodynamics, yeah. and it still comes up? Yeah, it's true. It's I still have to deal with it on a daily basis through Facebook and the questionnaire launch fee. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hastings is a lost cause, Matt. You, you can probably stop doing that. Uh, so Lewis <laughs> finishes by saying how Christians answer this problem, right? So they'll tell you how the demands of this law which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf, and how God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. Oh, blood sacrifice. Does that make any sense to you? So God's like, ah, oh, shit, i got to save these men from my own disapproval. So I guess, <laughs> I guess I'll become a man then to save men from my disapproval. Or I suppose I just stop disapproving him. Nah, nah, I think going down there and getting myself crucified will do the trick. So all this... What else is he going to do? He's done creating the universe. (laughs) Right. There's no other fucking options he's got. Well, you you know, once you have your toys, you play with them. Yeah, it's true. You go and get yourself fucking nailed to a cross by them. It just seems the, the appropriate thing to do. So, Matt, all this is a setup for the next part, What Christians Believe, book two, which we're going to cover in a future podcast. Yeah, that's going to have to wait until I didn't spend the whole day shoveling snow out of my driveway. You have an excruciating back pain? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Time right. for wine and Advil. Excellent. Can you put those together? Is that okay? Um, yes. Go for it. Report back to me. I shall. All right, Matt. Thanks. I'll see you next time. Okay, I don't feel like an idiot at all.